thought we'd start the new year off with something light. Those laughing know what's in Ezekiel, and maybe especially in Ezekiel 37. Uh, Toward the end of December, we had some Christmas messages, and uh, last week, Parker Landis preached for us from Philippians 2, a great message. Next week, I'll be in Guatemala for the uh, dedication of the Achi translation that we've been a part of for, uh, I don't know, four or five years now. We've been um, a part of that project, and seeing it come to fruition now, we have the privilege of being down there with our brothers and sisters in Achi land. Uh, Dave Bruskis will be preaching for us. Dave is the, the pastor of Mars Hill, Albuquerque, here in town. And uh, as Tim Ray said earlier in the service, next week will be our ministry fair Sunday. So a great Sunday, don't miss it. Um, but in light of all this, we'll do some miscellaneous messages in January before we get back to Luke's gospel account, which is what we've been in for a, a little more than a year and a half now, believe it or not, with breaks here and there. Uh, we'll get back to that, Lord willing, soon. Ezekiel 37. Let me read the first 14 verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them, round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, that you may know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope has perished, we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I'll put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Well, this is a vision, not an actual occurrence. Uh, Ezekiel didn't really see with, his, uh, with the eyes of his eyeballs, you could say, this kind of thing. But this is a common way in which God communicated to his prophets and then through the prophets to the people. He would pull them aside in a dream or a vision and they would see miraculous things, amazing things. It's not a real occurrence, but it's a powerful, vivid vision. And, and it's not... 
one of those kind of visions that you might have in a, a dream where you can't figure it out. It's, it's strange, but this isn't the same thing as a dream where you know, the tin man and a rooster are playing cards and smoking cigars with you. Figure that one out, right? What does that mean? What's that dream mean? Well, the way God does this is picturesque, yes, but picturesque with very intentional purposes and hints within to tell us exactly how to understand what he's doing. Sometimes even, as is the case with this one, clear explanation at the end of it. So it starts out maybe by, by understanding some of the specifics of the, the imagery. Ezekiel's brought to a valley of bones, and you notice in verse 2, he's made to pass among them, round about. It means God is saying, check this out, look around, size this up. And what does he see? He sees what is in appearance of a slain army. I mean, what else could it be? A, a, a valley where wars happen, right? A valley of bones scattered throughout. Scattered bones not connected to tendons or muscle, but picked apart by the birds and decaying. And they're dry bones, bleached white from the sun's exposure. And clearly the intention here is to show that this is dead as dead gets. It's not a question like, you know, uh, like you have in some movies, how dead is he, right? This is dead, 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 really dead, dry bones, separated dry bones, scattered dry bones, no burial here, no proper burial. Can they live? That's the question God asks. And then in verse 4, God says, prophesy to these dry bones, which doesn't mean tell them the future necessarily, that is the case. We saw that that gets fulfilled. The prophecy gets fulfilled. But prophecy here is just to preach, to speak on behalf of God. Preaching to a valley of dry bones is absurd. It's, it's useless. It's, it's hopeless. And remember, Ezekiel's a prophet. Often prophets have had to go and proclaim and plead with obstinate people. As a preacher myself, I know something of the frustration of preaching to people who are disinterested. I did a youth internship when I was in college and decided I didn't want to do youth ministry. You have to kind of reel the kids along and do a little song and dance here and there to keep them listening. And I thought, well, I just want to preach. I don't want to, I don't want to entertain. I don't want to have to do that. It's tough preaching to people who are sleeping, more common with adults, right? <laughs> And I want to just sometimes say, just go home, get a nap, get some sleep. You, you know, you'd be more comfortable at home and I'd be, I'd be less distracted if, if, if I didn't see this. <laughs> the whiplash, okay? It's frustrating sometimes to preach to people who don't get what you're saying and they're okay that they don't get what you're saying. They're not interested really in what you're saying. But I've yet to have to preach to dead people. Or have I? <laughs> And I, I mean it not as a joke, have I? We'll come back to that issue in just a, a little bit, toward the end here. I have five P's that came to mind as I studied this passage this week. I don't know why P's seem to come out of my messages more than others. If my name was Paul or Peter, it might be an explanation, but uh, it's not. So here are the P's. The first is assessing the problem. The problem. 
Here's the problem. This is Israel in 6th century B.C. We're clear that this is about Israel. Verse 11, God says, These bones are the whole house of Israel. And in verse 11, it's clear, Israel's hope seems dead. Dead as a doornail. Dead as dry bones. And if we were to back up and read the earlier parts of Ezekiel, we'd see why. Ezekiel 16 It's a chapter devoted to how God's people's sin is like this. They're whoring around. They're harlots. Uh, Their relationship with God is supposed to be like a marriage relationship, and so there's supposed to be fidelity there. But instead, Ezekiel 16 has graphic image language there to show the ugliness of rebellion against God and the ugliness of going and looking for other gods, going and selling yourself off to other gods. So the whoring of Ezekiel 16 is a spiritual unfaithfulness, and it's a recurring theme in Scripture. Whole books are written on that one theme, one by Ray Ortland, who was here with us uh, just a few months ago for our Claris conference. So in this whoring around, God is going to bring judgment. And the judgment is going to be first a removal from the land, the, the land that he gave them, the land that was flowing with milk and honey and promised from long ago. He's going to give them a timeout, you could say. He's going to put them in slavery in Babylon. And while they're there, the temple and the city of their home will be destroyed. And so Ezekiel is writing right after these things have happened. About 15 years after he was exiled to Babylon in God's judgment of slavery, And about 15 years after the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the the crashing of the walls, God's people were unresponsive before this exile, when it was warned that it was coming. So you read the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they were the ones before the exile. And then there are these prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, who are Warning in the midst of the judgment, but the people are still unresponsive in the midst of the judgment. God has even said, here will be the signs of my judgment. I'll put you in a foreign land. And there they are. They're unresponsive to the sign of God's judgment, the reality of God's judgment. He's saying, I'll destroy this this city, this temple. And there they see it, hear about it at least, and They're unresponsive to it. And now they're unresponsive to these prophets who are pleading while they're in a foreign land, like like I said, like Ezekiel and Daniel. And so things are going from bad to worse while they're in Babylonian captivity. Part of the problem is that they keep hearing the prophets say, eventually it'll get better. Eventually blessings are coming. These promises are true. We, we know that they did come to fulfillment, even greater fulfillment than maybe those like Ezekiel knew. But, but here is what captures the doubt and despair of the people who were hearing the prophets. Chapter 12, verse 22 of Ezekiel. The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Every vision looks like just judgment. Or if it's positive, if it's hopeful, if it's a promise, we don't see it. When's it, when's it coming? So look at the language of verse 11 in chapter 37. Israel is dead. Hope is dead. They even say, we are cut off. Serious language in the Old Testament. Cut off really has its roots back with Abraham in a sign that God gave him. We call it circumcision. 
Circumcision is kind of a, a, a double sign. It can go either one of two ways. Circumcision either meant, I will remove the flesh and throw it away, the, the, the bad stuff, the, the sin. I will remove the flesh and cleanse you. Or it can mean, if you don't follow my ways, if, if you leave me for other gods, if you keep whoring around, you will be cut off. You will be thrown off, thrown away. And so the people wonder if they themselves have now been cut off. And as far as they were concerned, as far as they could understand, it sure seemed like that. And they were right that it was bad. In fact, this time here in Ezekiel 37, and that imagery of a valley of dry bones perhaps points back to something God threatened in Deuteronomy. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 28. God said, if you don't obey the Lord your God, if you don't do his commandments and his statutes, then these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then it's just in bullet form. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your offspring of your body, the produce of the ground, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Cursed shall be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. And then just a few verses later, listen to this. Here's the part reminiscent of the valley of dry bones. Your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there'll be no one to frighten them away. Maybe God is showing here, this time has come. This judgment has fallen upon you. And they felt utterly hopeless, like it was dead, as dead can be. And maybe you're that hopeless, by the way. Maybe many of us in this room today feel like that's an apt description of your life right now. Just, it's, a, it's dry bones. Everywhere I look, it's dry bones. Everything looks crusty. Everything looks hopeless. It looks like he has given up on me. He has forgotten me. And the Israelites were right that this was bad. They, they were right to see that it looked hopeless, but they were hopeless in and of themselves. What they didn't account for is God's faithfulness, even his persistence, to do his people good, to save them. Not just his faithfulness, but his power. They didn't account for his power to do the miraculous, to save them with a mighty arm. And they didn't account for God's commitment to his own name, a theme we'll see throughout, throughout this study. So God's faithfulness, God's power, and God's name, these are the reasons and the means by which he does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, what seems like the impossible. That's the problem. Secondly, second P here is demonstrating his power. This passage is about God demonstrating his power because he alone has, to, has the power to do what is impossible. And he so often chooses to work this way. Here's the thing. It seems like reading the Bible... God chooses to do the thing that seems impossible, that seems amazing, as the norm, not the exception. I mean, that's usually the way he works. So you think of Joshua. There's so many examples of the Old Testament, but you know, Joshua being asked by God, how many people, how many, 
How many numbers do you think you need to defeat that army over there? He gives a number and God says, how about we just chop that down to one-tenth? Go get them, guys. Why did he do that? So that when the victory was won, they would know it's the Lord who fights for them. Or at the same time, God tells them, go around that city, the city walls, march around it seven times, and on the seventh time, blow the trumpet. What's that going to do? Nothing. But at the same time, I will make the walls fall down because I'm powerful. Your trumpets aren't. Your, your legs aren't. It doesn't make sense to march around the city seven times before you enter it. Seems like a waste of energy, right? But God is persistently showing that he chooses to show himself powerful. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, two chapters that really encourage you to read after this morning. Uh, they're so relevant for uh, what we're talking about here in Ezekiel 37 and other places we'll look. But there, those two chapters have this one theme, that God chooses to use what seems foolish to us, which seems weak to us. He takes the principles of the world, what works and what's big and what's cool, and he turns it on its ear. Why? So that he gets the glory. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, later on, a different book to the same church, 2 Corinthians 12, said that God's strength is perfected in weakness. Perfected in weakness. There's really no good English word to capture that Greek word that's usually put as perfected there in 2 Corinthians 12. What does it mean? God, his strength is perfected in weakness. It means it's glorified in weakness. It's shown in weakness. It's demonstrated in weakness. When we have nothing of our own strength, whatever strength that's there, we know it's his. And Paul says that he glories in that. He basks in that. Rejoices in that. Similarly, back in Ezekiel 37, remember God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's response is great. He says, oh Lord God, you know, which shows humility, that he doesn't know exactly what God will do. Can these bones live? Lord, you know. I, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how the rest of this vision pans out here. But it shows confidence about what God can do. Oh, Lord God, you know. There's no limit to your power. It's just a matter of your will. Can these bones live? Yes, they can. And all God has to do is say it, and they live. Say it. Is there anything that you can effect merely by saying it? Yeah, my wife getting me some chips. My kids taking out the trash. Yeah, but you can't make it happen. You, you might be batting pretty well this month, right? I'd be batting 900 this month with the kids' obedience. But you can't make it happen. It doesn't be because you say it. And God says it, and it is. And this should lead us to great confidence in our God and in our God alone, not ourselves, not our strength, not our wisdom, not our conniving, not our plan B's or C's or D's. But in God alone, he can do the unthinkable. He does it to demonstrate his power. Thirdly, he does it usually by using preaching. Preaching. 
God has chosen to use preaching time and time again. He began the word, you could say, by him preaching to nothing so that it would be creation. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Psalm 33 says, when he spoke, it was done. And when he commanded it, it stood firm. It was there because he said And he revealed himself in his word over and over again through his word. It might come to us through prophets, but it's God speaking to prophets. Or God speaking through New Testament apostles. But he speaks. We have a speaking God. We have a word kind of God. Again, no surprise that John chapter 1 begins by revealing Jesus as the what? The what? The word. He's the word in the flesh. He's the preaching of God incarnate, you could say. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, Paul says that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now this verse is is often misquoted even by preachers because they'll say, God was well pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. It doesn't say that. It says the foolishness of the message. The message is, is the thing that is foolish according to our human understanding, according to our, our mere human eyes. But notice that it's the foolishness of the message preached. Not the foolishness of the message traumatized or put in a Mel Gibson movie. It's the foolishness of the message preached. Not the foolishness of the message demonstrated by a massive power team who rip phone books in half because they have Philippians 4.13 t-shirts on. No. Isn't it interesting that in Ezekiel 37, God did not first do the miraculous of assembling bones and putting flesh on them and then, and then have Ezekiel preach to him? He didn't breathe life into them, so now they move. They're not just a, an army of zombies, corpses just standing there. And then God breathed life into them, and then Ezekiel preached to them? That's how I would have thought it to be. God, raise them up, do the mighty, do a resurrection, and then have your servant preach to those who have ears to hear. But God chose Ezekiel to preach to the deadness first, And then he uses preaching miraculously. Word and spirit. They always go together. You see this throughout scripture. Word and spirit is what God uses to to make his plan happen. Not just the spirit that comes and communicates to human beings in some sort of mystical experience. But word and spirit. And not just word, like it's merely Dale Carnegie trying to convince you of something. Like it's just a philosopher trying to rationalize something. It's not mere persuasion. It must be the Spirit. And so there's a play on words throughout this vision that's really important to see. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The Hebrew word for breath, as in life, is ruach. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. All the same word. 
translated differently in our English Bibles based on the context of what's around them. So if it's blowing through the world, you know it's wind. It's, it's not breath. But if it's going inside of someone, that's, that's breath. And what is breath inside of someone if it keeps going in and out but life? It's like the same way we use heart's beating as a, just a metonym for life. They're alive. All the same word with a purposeful overlap of meaning, almost like a pun. So let me just show you one verse. This Hebrew word, ruach, is used other places. But look at verse 9, where we see it stacked up, I believe, four times. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. As Ezekiel preaches, God's spirit goes forth in word, breath, and life comes into being right there in dead bodies. And by the way, tuck this away. God commands the impossible all over Scripture. God commands the impossible. Get used to that reality. There was a fierce debate in the church of the 16th century between a a guy named Augustine and another guy, Pelagius. And of course, it's still a hot debate today. Does God command what we cannot do? Augustine said so. He said in a prayer to God, command what you will and grant what you command. Give whatever you command. Make it so. Empower it. Make it happen. Well, Pelagius said, God would never command what we do not have the ability to do. But Jesus preaches to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus can't come forth of his own power, of his own strength. God often commands the impossible. Now, Ezekiel 37, by implication, gives us an encouragement here to trust what God says that he blesses. In other words, it tells us, avail yourself to preaching. Put yourself, you dry bones, you living soul, you mighty army, put yourself in the path of preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in London in the last century, had an interesting counseling policy. Now imagine a different kind of setup for church. It may be one like you grew up in, one I did grow up in. Not where it's Sunday morning uh, worship service, and then there are other things like home groups and Bible studies that happen during the week that aren't quite like, like this. Well, the church I grew up in, in Lloyd-Jones' church back there 50, 60 years ago, would have been more like Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service. So when someone came to him and said, Pastor, I need counseling. I need to work out my marriage problems with you. Help us fix this. You know, I, I have depression. Help me. Please, can I meet with you weekly? He would tell them to go to every sermon in the church for three months and then come back to him. And he said, in 20 plus years of, of a pastoring ministry, he said 80% of the time, when we talked later, the people said, no, that's all right, everything got worked out. A part of that's just time. 
time does heal some wounds. Part of that is the preaching of God's word. And part of it is the consistency of hearing God's word. Part of it is that not every sermon touches every need and every button. Hold on, keep coming, keep watching. So why do we come on Sundays? Why do we do what we're doing right now? Well, many reasons. Fellowship, singing, praying together, yes. But primarily, we need to hear from God. We need for him to speak. Now, preachers aren't God. But as they're faithful to Scripture and they get it right, they say what it says, then it's as if God speaks afresh. He speaks afresh. It's as if he says it personally and live to you. Do you believe that? D.A. Carson, he believes it. He said this, he said, Ideally, the sermon is more than just a communication of propositions and morals. It's the communication of God from God. In the sermon, God mediates himself to us by the same word when once again it's announced by the man of God. That man of God is a special, a special word used of prophets throughout the Old Testament. Seventy-five times God referred to his prophets as man of God. It meant God's man. So when Paul talks about Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 being a man of God, it doesn't just mean a godly man. It means God's speaker, God's preacher, God's proclaimer. So let me throw out a challenge to you. It's not in the Bible, so take it or leave it. But let me throw out a challenge that in 2010, you avail yourself to all of the Sunday morning DSC sermons. There'll only be 52. If we have a big snow, there'll be 51. Now, I'm not saying be here every Sunday necessarily. We, we do vacations. We go away for a family thing. I get it. But today, we have the ability to go online. It's called the internet. The webs, as they sometimes call it. And you can go online and listen to any of the sermons. Today, 1 o'clock p.m., Lord willing, this sermon will be there on the web. You don't want to repeat it, but... If you missed today, you could go and listen even by Sunday afternoon or get the CD if you're not an online kind of person. But here's why I encourage you to do that. Every sermon is something of like a a building upon another and we're a family learning together. And so we we put some, some blocks down and we build on those and we build around those. Not because the sermons are so good or because the preacher's good, but because God speaks. And because we are in a community of hearing him together. And so we, we should be in on that together. Now let me give another encouragement that sounds like a, like a qualification of the first one. Let me encourage you that MP3s from the web and CDs are not the same thing as corporate worship. It's a good substitute that we have today that they didn't have 70 years ago, Sure. But that's not the same thing. Don't think, I'll just stay home and I'll listen to it online. I'll get the CD next week. I can do that in my car. And that way it frees up Sunday morning. It's not the same thing. And let me encourage you to not miss because of who is and who is not preaching. Isn't, isn't that a fitting application, I think, from, from this passage here in Ezekiel? It's not about Ezekiel. It's not about your favorite web preacher. 
Well, I guarantee he's better than me. And, and if you're not a web sermon listener, but you come on Sunday mornings, but you sometimes don't come when I'm not preaching, friend, why are you coming? I don't want you to like me like that. I, I want you to come to hear from God. And as any of our pastors or staff members are faithful to God's word, we believe God speaks afresh. And we believe that you need it. And we believe that we're in a community of hearing from him together. And we need those together. But, but let me leave the encouragements aside here and give you an encouragement for you, not an encouragement to you. The encouragement for you is for your ministry, whatever that ministry is. Ezekiel would, would plead with you, be faithful, be bold, and trust him to do what only he can do. When Jerem Bars was with us a, a couple of months ago for our prayer emphasis weekend, he gave this quote from Francis Schaeffer. You might remember that he lived with the Schaeffers at Labrie in Switzerland for years. Labrie was a, a community of learning and fellowship, godliness, a kind of a commune for Christ, if you will. Francis Schaeffer said this to the Labrie people often. We're not just attempting something difficult. We're attempting something impossible. That's true for all of us in whatever we're doing, whatever ministry we're in. Home group leader, you're not just attempting the difficult. You're attempting the impossible. I know you think it's not impossible to get people to come or get people to listen or to get people to pray or to get people to sign up for the meal. But really, when we talk about the spiritual depth by which, by which we should do any of these things, we're attempting the impossible. God must do it. He must be our hope. So don't be surprised that God calls you to do something hard. Check with Ezekiel on that. Don't be surprised that God calls you to lead stubborn people. Check with any of the Old Testament prophets on that. Don't be surprised when the fruit seems small, or when the fruit seems non-existent, when it seems dead as dry bones. Don't think that he's not working. Now, sometimes there are things to fix. Some things we could do differently. Sometimes it's not the truth that people stumble over, but you, they stumble over. Or me. And we should think about how to, to love them as we should. Communicate as we should. Yes, be friendly. Be normal. But where fruit seems small and non-existent, we shouldn't be quick to think that he's not working even despite our weaknesses. He's working. Did you notice that the, the dry bones were brought to life in stages? You see that? First, bones were put in order to make a, a skeleton standing up. And then, flesh grew and skin covered them. And then, after more preaching from Ezekiel, breath and life enters them. The implication is that God never does anything all at once. That's not overstated. God never does anything all at once. In creation... We spread out. Even the new heaven and the new earth coming down to us, the resurrection of Christ where he makes us new, oh, that's a lot at once. But he had stuff before. Stuff to get us ready for that. 
He almost, no, not almost, he never does all his work at once. Be patient, be faithful. The fourth thing here is that God is fulfilling his promises. Fourth P, promises. He does have a plan, and he is bringing it to pass according to what he promised, but it will be in his timing. It'll be in his way. And it will be, oftentimes, in spite of us. In fact, he seems to be intent to prove this point. And the point proven sometimes takes a while to prove it. That he'll have to do it in spite of us. Israel's failings. Their apostasy. They're whoring around, as Ezekiel 16 said. Why is it there? So it would get to the point of dry bones. And they would say, hope is lost. We're cut off. As far as themselves were concerned, yes, hope was lost. Now you're ready to see him work. He often works in spite of us. The exiles did return, just as God said that they would. Look at verse 12, Ezekiel 37. God says, I'll open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. It doesn't literally mean people coming up out of the graves. Remember, the whole house of Israel was this valley of dry bones. It means God will raise them up. God will, again, bring them into the land of Israel. Or in verse 14, I will place you on your own land. This is recorded for us in books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So God was faithful to his promises despite the fact that it seemed dead. And I could camp out on it. But just here, this historical little background point, it seemed absolutely impossible that God would be able to even get his people back into the land. With all that was going on at a geopolitical level back then, it seemed impossible that God would do that. And he did it. But keep in mind that that return to the land, the resurrection of Israel in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't that great after all. It wasn't as great as these prophets like Ezekiel were promising while they were in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the slavery. You see, once they could come back, not all did come back. This is not the same thing as you know, moving to Georgia and deciding to stay, not come back. To not come back to the land when you can come back to the land is tantamount to, to saying, I'm not interested in that God anymore. In those days, for those people, not all came back. Some chose to stay in Babylon. Bad word, hear it, Babylon. And some came back after intermarrying with Babylonians or, or other other races with other gods, and so the people sometimes came back with idols in their pockets. Once the temple was rebuilt, it was supposed to be greater than the first temple, the one built under Solomon, but it wasn't even of that former glory. Haggai later on tells us this. Haggai 2.3 says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? The first temple under Solomon. How do you see it now? Ezra and Nehemiah, after the exile, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So, wait a minute, Ryan, what are you saying? You're saying that God didn't really resurrect them, didn't really put them back in the land? It was kind of a half-fulfillment? He was faithful to his promises, and yet, yes, it was kind of a half-fulfillment. 
On the one hand, he's bringing a grand plan to fulfillment. It, it seems hopeless, even dead, and yet he brings them back to the land. On the other hand, the goal was never really just a restoration to the land and never really just a get-out-of-Babylon kind of thing. And the passage itself promises more than a temporal, geographic sort of restoration. What was it that was repeated most in Ezekiel 37? Remember? Spirit. Spirit. Look at verse 14. Life. I will put my spirit within you. That's key. It's key because, get this, Ezekiel 36, one chapter before, is the first place in the Old Testament that clearly promises God's spirit. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you you know this is a common thing. It's a a big theme in the New Testament. But Ezekiel 36 says, I'll give you a new heart, I'll put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Let me give you some more Old Testament about the spirit. Numbers 11 When Moses suspects the people are jealous that he's God's prophet, he says, what, you're jealous? I I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them. Well, why is that significant? Because of Joel, chapter 2, where Joel says it'll come about eventually that God will pour out his spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Why is that significant? Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes this. He quotes Joel 2 and says this has been fulfilled now. The Spirit has come and Peter prophesies, preaches. And the Spirit comes on all Christians, right? So all Christians are to proclaim Moses' hope that all the people would prophesy and get God's Spirit eventually came true. But Ezekiel 36 is the first place where we hear God promise, I will put my spirit within you. It means this, God was giving commands all through the Old Testament, but more than information was needed, more than mere command was needed. They needed God's empowerment. They needed God within them. They needed the spirit. And that's exactly what happened eventually. Jesus comes. And he tells his disciples he's going to leave. He's going to die, right? And then he'll go up to a place that they know not yet of, but they'll join him someday. And in the meantime, he will give them his spirit. He will indwell you. That was the plan all along. Ezekiel, hearing that Israel would be raised up someday, that they won't die, that they won't totally be cut off, they will be brought to the land but not just brought to the land for a kind of half-temple, sort of weak king, sort of uncertain days. It's a temporary hope, but eventually it leads to more hopelessness and doubt until Jesus comes, and Jesus comes to bring us the new covenant. That's what he said, and he gave us the, the Lord's Supper. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That's what Ezekiel's talking about. He's doing this not just for our good, though, not for our wants and benefits alone. He's doing it for his fame, his name, his glory. 
Look at chapter 36. We already read verse 20. So skip down to verse 22. Let me just read 22 and 23. God says here, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what God says, Is it not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name? It's not for your sake. It's for my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you went. So I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. You see it in verse 14 of chapter 37. I will do this and you will know that I am the Lord. And you will know that I've spoken it and it will come to pass. What he speaks will come to pass. God is fulfilling his promises, even when it looks darkest, even when it looks most hopeless, and it's the same today. It looks like his promises have fallen flat for you, right? Well, it may be that you've listened to the TV preacher too long. You know? It's maybe that you've heard that your best life can be now. That's not true. Our best life is to come. And Paul said, If we've hoped in this life only, we're fools. We we should be pitied. This life is hard. But he has done what he's done according to his plan. Even when it seems dark and when it seems hopeless, it's it's not a plan B or C or D or now on, you know, triple Z. He's doing what he's doing in his timing. Not yours. In his way. That's often not ours. And he's doing it often in spite of us. To show us that it's in spite of us. To show us that he gets the glory. To to show us that, that his eternal goal is his glory and not yours. That's okay because he's God. And you're not. Find comfort in that. And lastly, let me talk about this. Painting our picture. What do I mean by picture? I mean in this vision, this dry bones to life vision, we have a picture for our own conversion if we're Christians. We were spiritually dead. We were preached to. And God did the miraculous of bringing about life by word and by spirit. He brings life. Now look at Ephesians 2 with me. Would you turn over there? won't be there long, but I want you to see Ephesians chapter 2, which is something of the theological analysis of the picture that Ezekiel was giving to us in chapter 37. Think of this as the x-ray of your salvation. Okay? You know what you know from the surface. You know what what happened. You know the story. So-and-so said this to me. And I finally got it. I finally saw that Christ is the Savior and King. I have no hope but Him. And you decided to put your faith in Him. Repent, believe, and trust for redemption. Well, here's the x-ray of what was going on behind that. In chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked. Even though you were dead, you walked. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, all of us, just the bad people, us, us middle class folks, 
We lived. Dead but lived. We lived in the lusts of our flesh. It was a death to righteousness, a death to God. We indulged in the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we're by nature, because of all this, we're by nature inheriting God's wrath. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Again, an emphasis on how it's universal, even as the rest. But it doesn't stop there. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Not loving us because we were lovely. See the previous three verses. See the verse itself. He loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive. Resurrection. Dry bones. Come to life. Why? By grace you've been saved. That much grace? I heard Jesus died for me, and I have to just believe it, not do anything to earn it. Are you saying he had to come and scoop me up? Are you saying that the picture, Ryan, is not just we're paddling on the water trying to survive out in the ocean, and Jesus comes and throws us the the life ring? But you have to throw yourself on it, and then he'll pull you in. But that we're facing down in the water, floating. Yeah, the imagery here is obviously not that we're sin sick or that we're sin weak, but that we're sin dead. Which means that if you've believed in Christ like I have, God has done something personal, specific, and powerful, something special in you to open your eyes to see because you wouldn't on your own. To open your ears to hear because you wouldn't on your own. To give you legs to walk to him because you were quite content. I was quite content to be lame and sit in my sin. So, that's what God's word says. Romans 3.11, there's none who understands. None who seek after God. might feel like we seek after God. It might look like we seek after God. But this verse has to say something, and it says it about all of human beings. They don't seek God. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? It's it's his very nature. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What does God have to do? He has to give us a new heart. A heart that, that is eager for him, pants for him. In John 3, Jesus says, unless you're born again, or born of the Spirit, or born from above, he says it in a few different ways in John 3, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He says that which is born of flesh is just flesh. That's all parents can do, ultimately, is birth flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Nicodemus is amazed at this. How can I be born again? He's trying to think of it in physical terms. It's a spiritual analogy. Don't be amazed that I said you must be born again, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, John six forty four: No man can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is our Bible. Now, 
We don't have a fetish for hard sayings in the Bible. But we better not have an aversion to them. Some things are beyond our comprehension. But we better not camp out a mile away from it and say, I bet that's going to get a little thorny later. Uh, Let's go someplace else. This is God's word. He's spoken. Listen to this. Acts 16. Maybe the the picture of drawing someone, dragging someone, it almost sounds like, is a little too scary for you? Well, we talk like this. Like it says in Acts 16 about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul as he preached the gospel to her. That's why we pray, Lord, open his heart. Lord, open her heart to see, to believe. If we didn't really think that God could do anything, we wouldn't pray that way. No one prays. God, I just want you to know that I know you have done everything you can do and you would not do anything in their inside, in their soul to, to, you know, bring them to yourself or to, to make them see. I just want you to know that I know you're off the hook. No one prays that way. Why? We want God to intervene. We believe God has intervened in our hearts, right? No one says, God, I just want to thank you that I was smart enough to believe, wise enough to believe, that I get it. I I want to thank you that I took that philosophy class and I started thinking more metaphysically. No, we don't say that. We say, God, thank you. Well, I was helpless. You came to me. It's not that we first loved him. It's that he first loved us. Here's how John Knox put it in 1560. The Scots Confession, it's called. He says, For by nature we are so dead, blind, and perverse that neither can we feel that we are pricked, see the light when it shines, nor assent to the will of God when it's revealed, unless the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quickens or awakens that which is dead, removes the darkness from our minds, and bows our stubborn hearts to the obedience of his blessed will. And you say, I, I don't know. I heard John Knox was mean. He had a big, long goatee. He did. He was sometimes mean. Listen to Charles Wesley. He was sometimes mean, but he had a different theology, and he still wrote this. The hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, followed thee. You see, the bad news is worse than we thought. But the good news is far better than, than you knew. How? Actually, in another resurrection, Jesus is, that's how these things come to pass. Jesus was the Israel who took our death and was raised by the Spirit of God on the third day. So now, those who believe in him, who believe that he went from death to life for us, we now have newness of life, and we walk And fellowship together is something alive. Let's act like it. We believe that God does what we can't do. God fulfills his promises. 
in his timing, in his way, for his namesake, but he does it. He's done it to us, and he is doing it. He's not yet done. This is our story. This is the story of the Bible. This is the beloved story of every Christian.